I'm Keith Law, and welcome to a new episode of The Keith Law Show. I will be joined in a few moments by Doug Matheson, recently retired, but a longtime scout from multiple organizations, including the Chicago Cubs and San Francisco Giants. Uh, I do want to just highlight a couple of pieces. First, one that I wrote, one that I didn't write but actually really liked and wanted to recommend. Uh, The piece that I wrote went up on Friday, and it was about how the new agreement between Major League Baseball and the Players Union may affect the 2020 draft. I spoke to a number of sources with the union, with the league, with some player agents as well. Uh, to ask what they thought it would mean going forward. The agreement provides a lot of flexibility for Major League Baseball to make changes. Nothing has been set in stone, of course, because we don't know if or when players will even be able to go out and work out in front of scouts again. But that went up on March 27th for subscribers to The Athletic, uh, and I hope you all uh, check it out. I will also have a piece up later this week. I mentioned it last week on my favorite baseball video game from when I was a kid. Uh, That is Earl Weaver Baseball, and I have some thoughts on it. I spoke to one of the developers about it as well. That is supposed to go up on April 2nd. The piece I wanted to highlight that I didn't write, but I kind of wish I had, went up on sportsillustrated.com, si.com. And that is by Emma Bacilleri, who is a friend of mine, but that's not why I'm recommending the piece. I'm recommending the piece because it's really good. It's, is it wrong for baseball players to get Tommy John surgery? And she spoke to people who are experts in medical ethics about players getting what is an entirely elective, non-essential surgery during the coronavirus pandemic when hospital resources are or may shortly be strained due to rapidly rising numbers of coronavirus patients. So I absolutely encourage you to check that out. Uh, I happen to agree with the perspective that's in there, but I am just an observer, whereas she spoke to people who are actual experts in the field. Now, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Doug Mapson, who was a longtime scout for multiple organizations, most recently the San Francisco Giants. Doug's somebody I've gotten to know extremely well over the years. He's a good friend. Uh, he's always been very good to me, uh, especially when I first got started at ESPN and was kind of learning the ropes of, of following scouts around and trying to better understand what they did so I could better do my own job. And Doug's got some great stories from us from his long tenure in scouting. First of all, Doug, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. No, it's a pleasure. So if listeners uh, are familiar with Doug's work at all, it's probably because a scouting report, an old scouting report of Doug's went viral a few years ago. It was a scouting report of a young high school pitcher named Greg Maddox. And Doug was the signing scout when Maddox was coming out of high school. And the scouting report was actually pretty good, uh, which, you know, knowing the difficulty of evaluating high school pitchers is all the more impressive. So, Doug, why don't you tell us, I'd really love to hear, so, you know, when did you first see Maddox and what did you think as you, as you evaluated him? I assume you saw him multiple times. Uh, you know, wh- what were the, what did you see as you kept seeing him and the conclusions you, you eventually drew about what kind of player he might be? Well, I saw him first his junior year, and then um, Gene Hanley, who was our supervisor with the Giant or with the Cubs back then, happened to see him, and we were both very excited about him, especially at Gene's um, urging. But so saw him pitch once, I think, his junior year, and then his senior year, I probably saw him five times or so. A wise scout, George Genevieve, says if you, there's a player you like, you see him a whole bunch of times. So he was I was familiar with him from his scouting in my area when I was coaching, so I kind of heeded his advice there and, and saw Greg pitch as many times as possible. Probably the most interesting thing in retrospect is that today and even back then, you're supposed to go into the house and meet with the family and talk to the player, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I never talked to Greg till the fourth time I went in the house to sign him when I finally met him. And in retrospect, I wasn't that smart at the time. There was nothing I could ask him. I mean, you watched him pitch and he showed you everything he had. He competed. He threw strikes. He mixed his pitch as well. And um, if I'd have been that smart back then, I'd have been more aware of what I was actually seeing. I just know that I liked him. He had good stuff. He was um, a small right-hand pitcher in an era when, um, especially with the people that are working from the Cubs there, starting with Dallas Green, the general manager, he liked big pitchers. Um, mm-hmm. I worked with him with the Phillies as a part-time scout in 1980 and 81. And I think a Phillies 80 World Series team and the 13 pitchers, I think 11 or 12 of them were six, four bigger. So for myself and for Gene Hanley to sell Greg Maddox, I had to fib a little bit. I put in my report. I just looked at the one that you referenced that um, I put down. He was six one, <laughs> and he was actually he was actually five ten because that's five eleven at the time, and uh, how taller he was. So, um, and he he came back from his first year of pro ball, and um, he weighed one hundred forty five pounds. So five ten, one hundred forty five his first year. And I got to give credit to Dallas Green and everybody and Gordon Goldsberry in the in the Cubs organization back there that. Um, looked past the height for probably the first time in their scouting careers. And I'm um, selected Greg in the second round. I pulled up the same reports. You haven't listed six one one fifty five. So even if that were accurate, one fifty five would be even today, that's really still a small right out of pitcher. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean occasionally we see a, a high school kid come through at one fifty five, but even now, I think with all the weight training players do, especially uh, yeah. We don't see a lot unless you're, you know, a Nick Madrigal type who's just short. But a pitcher of that weight is it's rare. I wouldn't say never. I can think of a couple I've seen. It. Tristan McKenzie was probably about that when he came out of high school. But they're mm-hmm. not very many. We expect that even today. And, and so, yeah, it's pretty stunning to see that. What I love about the report, though, is that you had him even at that age with plus baseball instincts, plus aggressiveness average poise projected to plus in the future, which, you know, you're projecting on a kid who was probably 17 to 18, just turned 18 and projected all of that. You were, you were pretty aggressive with the grades. I'm saying this in a, in a good way, but you were aggressive in grading out what he was and what he could become, uh, given some experience. I had to with that height and interesting, you know, (laughs) along the height and size, um, he had a scholarship at the University of Arizona. Um, I talked to the coach at UNLV at the time, who was a friend of mine. He mm-hmm. said, I didn't even recruit him. He's a small bone right-hand pitcher, and those guys usually don't turn out. So even his local college wasn't too interested in him at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, the the line that's the the real winner in the whole report, though, is your first the first sentence you wrote. Obviously, all the grades for people who haven't seen this report. All the grades are up top, and then there's a paragraph where Doug, as all scouts had to do, sort of had to give his – general thoughts, uh, just under abilities. Your first sentence is, I really believe that this boy would possibly be the number one player taken in the country if only he looked a bit more physical, which just given what he, obviously what he turned out to be, looks particularly prescient. And he, uh, Maddox went 31st overall, which I'm assuming based on, this is before I was involved in the industry, but even then mm-hmm. for you to take a guy of that size, a high school right-hander of that size, with the 31st pick, probably there were probably there were other scouts or other teams who maybe thought that was high, maybe even thought it was crazy. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting about his being drafted when, um, Gene Hanley, my supervisor called me and said, Hey, I got you a player. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be Jeff Priest, um, who was a pitcher at UCLA. He was a prototypical six, four 
um, right-hand pitcher with good stuff. And he says, no, you got Maddox. I go, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and um, pe- people sometimes, this, this isn't meant to be critical, but it's kind of humorous, but um, people say, who's your favorite draft pick ever? And I say, um, Lorenzo Sisney. And they go, who's Lorenzo Sisney? <laughs> I said, I thought the Mets were going to take Maddox. And they took Lorenzo Sisney. Sisney <laughs> he was a catcher in Southern California. And <laughs> because they didn't think that he was going to be around when they picked the story goes. So they didn't do the right amount of homework on him to be able to select him. So we were, we were just lucky, you know, things came together and, and they said Gene Hanley and Gordon Goldsberry and Dallas Green really went against their, their grain to take a smaller right-hand pitcher. Oh, poor Lorenzo Cisney picked two picks ahead of Greg Maddox, played 30 games in 1984, missed 1985. I assume there's an injury, played another 47 games both in short season, missed 87, came back in 88, played 20 more games. That was his entire pro career. You couldn't get much more of yeah. a difference between two draft picks. No, no. And, um, so that's, that's just the luck. Of, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in the draft and the right people seeing him on the right day. And to the Cubs credit again, um, they sent, because the reports were so glowing, they sent numerous people in to see him. They all came away with the same impression of him. Another player you were involved in drafting uh, just a year after that, actually, now they look at it, uh, was Mark Grace, who was a 24th round pick. Also, uh, you were also with the Cubs in 1985 at San Diego State University. He'd been drafted a year and a half earlier, back when there was a January phase to the draft uh, in the 15th round by the Twins out of, I assume, Saddleback College's junior college. I've never even heard of it. Um, and then yeah, down in Orange County. Okay. And then he went to San Diego State, still 24th round. You do not expect to find a big leaguer when you draft someone in the 24th round, let alone someone who was maybe not a Hall of Famer, but a Hall of the very good type of player who had 2,400 career right. hits. So, again, sort of same question. What did you what did you see? And I'll ask point blank. I, I'm going to assume college first baseman without big power projection. Was that kind of a knock against him? That's a, that's a tough draft, too. And, um, Spider Jorgensen was actually the scout that had him in the area, and I've mm-hmm. seen him, and a lot of other people have seen him. But it's kind of, I kind of use this as an example because I think in today's baseball, he might not even have been drafted. But um, Spider saw him, and in the summary you referenced that I had on Greg Maddox, Spider's summary was, no matter what the situation is, if the game's on the line, he seems to come to bat and always comes through. And there's no analytical button you can push for that kind of scouting instincts that the spider had with Mark Grayson. He had the most hits, I think of any, any player in the decade of the nineties. So he was, yes. he was a good player yep. and a, a stalwart, tremendous defensive player. And even Sean Dunstan credits him with making him a good shortstop because he got a tremendous arm, but um, a lot of errant throws that uh, Mark Grayson was able to dig out of the, dig out of the dirt or go up the line or whatever to do it. So you know, scouting instincts are something that I don't think in this day and age enough attention is paid to. But you take a scout like Spider that had that that was his summary from Mark Grace. It's pretty good. The interesting thing I think about Grace, again, I was still a kid, so just a fan. I remember Grace as a prospect, but even when I started in the business, that profile, the college first baseman doesn't have a lot of physical projection, definitely doesn't project to power, and Grace never hit his career high in home runs in any one season was 17. That type of player, we don't disregard him totally, but that's a knock, right? That is a big negative. He's a a first baseman without power. Even though he he hit, Grace hit everywhere. He hit 
in college. He, he raked in the minors and he hit basically for average, at least without striking out much at all, pretty much from the moment he got to the big leagues. And I'm just going to assume and tell me if I'm wrong, but then even back in 85, when, when you guys drafted him, was that kind of, was that part of the conversation was that's just not a profile we typically like the corner guy who's he hits for average, he's got great defense, but there's no power. No, I think the, um, the powers of be again with the, with the Cubs appreciated spiders instincts in terms of what kind of player he thought he would be. And, um, those kinds of opinions back then were held in, in very high regard. If you're an established scout with a, you know, good reputation and a, and the sound scouting instincts and skills. So, um, it was, it was, it was just interesting. And again, I said, I don't think that in this day and age, he would maybe even be drafted that being the case. Yeah, I would agree with that. Just having spent a lot of time, both seeing players and working with college data, the college data that I at least have had access to is right. those guys, they just don't score very high. Maybe that's not the best word, but you, no. I, you know what I mean? Cause you've been in those draft yeah, rooms with exactly. the models, the, the models don't boost those guys. Yeah, the, the the term model became a all encompassing thing the last few years I was involved in the draft. <laughs> it's all about it's all about the model. Right. Well Spider's mm-hmm. interesting too because I always tell the story about him. There's a famous picture that during Jackie Robinson's anniversary number of years back and they, they always showed a picture and actually had it on the wall at the Diamondbacks ballpark here of um, Frank Robinson and three other players on the edge of the dugout getting ready to go out for the for the his first game, Jackie's first game, the spider said, It was my first game too, but nobody gave a shit. <laughs> that's so I found the picture too. That's hilarious because I've seen this yeah, picture. Spider's the one on the left. Yes. I could not have told you. You could have said for a million dollars, name all the players in this. And I was like, nope. Nope. Yeah, Reese, I think, is next yes. to Spider, and I'm not sure who the middle one was. Yeah, that's incredible. I had no idea till yeah. this moment. I had no, I was, what, what's the joke? I was this many days old when I learned who that was in the photograph. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I remember one of the players you and I first talked about, we'd known each other maybe two, three years at this point, but when Brandon Bell, not when you guys took him with now with the Giants, mm-hmm. you took him in fifth round in 2009 out of the University of Texas, it was maybe a year after that when he'd gotten into pro ball and he raced through three levels of the minors and it was clear he was better than a typical fifth round pick. And um, right. I remember talking to you about him before I even got a chance to see him play. So, I, and I remember some of the details, but please share with us the story of what you saw of Belt and particularly his transformation. Because, of course, he was seen more coming out of high school three years earlier. I think he was seen more as a pitching prospect than a, as a position player. Yeah. Well, he was drafted out of high school as a pitcher. Mm-hmm. And I, I, tell, I told Brandon one time and reminded him several times that every year in scouting, there's some player you just don't like. And it's not anything to do with their ability. It's the way they carry themselves, their expressions, et cetera. And I hated Brandon Belt. I just <laughs> didn't didn't like to watch him pitch. And then I ended up being the one that kind of carried the carried the flag in terms of his drafting. Uh, Todd Thomas was the area scout, and he'd done a good job on him too. But the the interesting thing about about him is that in 2001, Kevin Euclid was taken by Boston in uh, I think the eighth round, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. And and when Kevin was in college. You guys will have to, your listeners will have to look it up, but um, his hitting approach was very similar to that that we see the pictures of Eddie Goodell. Mm-hmm. He was all <laughs> squashed, squashed down, spread out, and, you know, that's that's why I used in my analogy. He's a big version of Eddie Goodell at the plate. But I went to game to see him play, 
And as luck would have it, and I repeat, there's a lot of luck in scouting, I ended up sitting next to his mom. <laughs> and I said to her, how did Kevin come up with that hitting approach? And she goes, I'm tired of people asking me that. She says, watch, when the pitcher delivers the ball, he's in a good hitting position. I go, wow, that's pretty good coming from, coming from the mom. Right. right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she also said that two, the, maybe two years before, the year before, he was a shortstop. And so scouts told him that if you're going to play shortstop, you got to be able to steal some bases. And he stole 20-some bases, if I'm not mistaken, at the University of Cincinnati that year. Then he moved to third base, and they said, you're going to have to deal with some power, and he hit 20-some home runs. So, again, if I'd been smart enough to realize this, that's, that's aptitude. And a lot of players have ability, but the ones that have aptitude and can make adjustments, um, they're the ones that generally succeed. So we, we picked Kevin out, and the scouting bureau, at the at the end of the scouting season each year, the Major League Scouting Bureau would take out players um, off their list that they didn't think were really prospects, and they'd remove Kevin Euclid from their list. Oh, wow. So we thought we could pencil him in and take him in the eighth round, which you do sometimes. And um, Wayne Britton with Boston was a little smarter than us, and he took him before we selected in the eighth round that year, eighth or ninth, whatever whatever it happened to be. But um, it was just an interesting set of circumstances where I sat next to the mom and got that insight into the player. And they said when he got to, got to Boston, they said, hey, you're a pretty good-sized guy. I think it's 6'1", 220, something like that. He said, stand up and act like a big guy. And he did, and he had, hit a lot of home runs and was a good major league player for, for quite a few years, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's funny that that was Wayne's too, because Wayne's reputation was always a good, he was a good scout. Obviously I was always part yeah. of his reputation, but he was a pitching guy. Wayne's a really good. I remember Chris Buckley telling me when he first introduced me to Wayne, he said, Wayne's a great yeah. pitching. Cause you know how guys get that reputation. That was his thing, but yeah. Euclid's got to be one of his most successful picks uh, and a very against yeah. the grain pick. Yeah, very much so. But anyway, so to, to carry on with that, so mm-hmm. when Brandon Bell comes around, Brandon Bell was very spread out, and he was basically a line drive to left field for a left-hand hitter and didn't exhibit a lot of power. I was lucky enough to be sitting at the Cape Cod All-Star game at Chatham one year, and um forget the pitcher's name he was hitting off of, but he was 97, 98, and he turned one of those fastballs around and hit it a mile to right field. Then the Big 12 championship series in Oklahoma city had went off the, the facing. So the power was in there. So I basically said, you know, if you, if you use the Kevin Euclid's analogy and stand Brandon up and tell him he's a big guy, um, I think the power is going to be there. So it's, it, you know, he's been inconsistent. Um, the giants and things I read recently are really high on him because he gets an extraordinary number of walks and yes. walks and power, are a good combination of stay and age. The, uh, that was part of a, a ridiculous run of success you guys had in the draft with the Giants too. In 2008, actually, I should go back one more year. 2007, you took Madison Bumgarner with the mm-hmm. 10th overall pick. So that's 37 war. I just had baseball reference open. So that's his wins above replacement. The next year, you take Buster Posey in the first round, fifth pick, 42 war. Brandon Crawford in the fourth round, another 24 war. The year after that, you take Tim, uh, Zach Wheeler, 10.5 war in the first round. Obviously, he did that for other clubs. And then got Belt in the fifth round for another 23 war. And you had a lot of other big leaguers there. So you had a run there where your fifth rounders kept working out. Heath Hembry got to the big leagues. Ty Black, Blatch got to the big leagues. Um, Dan Slaney had just got a cup of coffee. They were all fifth round picks. The point in the draft where if you get to the big leagues at all, you did well. And you had a couple of guys who turned out to get to the big leagues and actually produce some value in the fourth, fifth, sixth round range when – 
the odds are really stacked against you. Well, Dick Kidrow was our scouting director then, and Dick would be just as pissed off if he blew your last pick as if you if he blew your first pick. <laughs> so everybody everybody was bearing down all the time. But he was amazing because in a three or four year period or five year period, we took Kane, mm-hmm. um, Ardsma after that, then we took Bumgarner, and Lincecum. So we did a pretty good job, especially Dick did on the pitching there in the in the first round for for a number of years. He's a tremendous best pitching person I've ever been around. Yes. Oh, reputation was amazing. Very intimidating looking guy too. I think it was the facial hair. Oh yeah. He looks the same. You look at his baseball card. I happen to have one sitting on my shelf and he was just as intimidating looking there. And he was kind of a low three quarter sidearm guy that just meaner than hell. And uh, (laughs) he must've been not a lot of fun to face. (laughs) No. Oh my gosh. Uh, last guy I wanted to ask you about was one of the ones I just mentioned there too, which is Brandon Crawford, who I saw a couple of times Mm -hmm. on the Cape and he could always play shortstop. He came, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, his reputation out of high school was, he was a big league defensive shortstop, went to UCLA immediately. You saw him. He said, that's, that's a major league shortstop. There's no question. The questions Mm -hmm. I had were always, what's he going to hit? He didn't have a whole lot of bat speed and he certainly didn't look like he was going to have all that much power. That was the thing that really stood out to me was, well, if he, if he gets the ball, it's going to be pretty weak contact. Obviously that's not how his career turned out. He really did come into some power a little late actually. Um, but it was, yeah. I'm going to assume, you know, it was always in there, but there were some adjustments that, uh, that he obviously made to his great credit, but you were with the giants at the time too. Just tell me, what did you think you were getting? Were you, was that a guy you were just excited to get in the fourth round? Cause you knew the defense was so good. Or did you guys feel like quietly that there might be a lot more in the bat than everyone else thought? Well, he had a bad summer up at Orleans in the Cape because mm-hmm. um, before his junior year. And even the people up there in Orleans say that he's one of the most disappointing players they've had up there for the way he performed. We knew he was a major league quality shortstop. And, and during the draft, after the first couple rounds, you're saying, who's the best shortstop out there? we got to get ourselves a shortstop. And, and Brandon was it. But he um, didn't tear him up his junior year in college. During the preseason, I watched him play a bunch and during the winter. And he really showed the ability to handle the bat at that point in time. He just didn't carry it into the season. And even to this day, I always say, and that might not be that accurate, but if you've watched Brandon play, if his first at bat, if he hits the ball to the left side of the field, he's probably going to have a pretty good day. If he grounds out to the first baseman his first time up, he's going to have trouble that particular day. So <laughs> he's got to use the field. And at times he does, at times he doesn't. He's had a you know stellar career and um, been a quality shortstop for the Giants for a number of years. Yeah, he's really – he showed up on one of my lists. You know, I do those articles every year, guys, I was wrong about. He showed up on one of them. Uh-huh. Just, I just never thought he would especially get to the power that he got to. And I think his, his, his plate discipline, like his actual approach, mental approach at the plate, got better enough that it allowed him to get to some of those counts too. And I, if you – I mean you could go back and tell me that 2008, I'd say, nah, I don't believe it. I don't think he's going to be that kind of player. He just really mm-hmm. – massively exceeded what I thought. I think what a lot of people thought if people had any inkling of what he was going to be, he would have gone in the second round instead of the fourth round. Fourth round was basically because he was oh, just yeah. such a good defender. Yeah. And you know, like I said, there's times in the draft when you, you got to take a catcher, you got to take a shortstop and you just go through your room and figure out who the best one available is. And we felt as a group that Brandon Crawford was the best at the time. John Barr was our scouting director there. And um, he liked what he'd seen in him, obviously too. 
Mm, yeah, you had an incredible run there, and that's part of how the Giants won those three World Series. It was largely on the back of multiple years of very productive draft classes, not just in the first round, but several picks uh, after the first round who panned out. And uh, Doug Mapson, my guest here, was a huge part of that. He was with the Cubs before that, signed and seen a lot of great players over the year. Doug, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Anytime. Give me a call. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. For 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Keith, K-E-I-T-H, at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Keith for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code K-E-I-T-H. I put out kind of a late call this week for questions for this week's mailbag. I apologize if you missed it. I just kind of forgot because I was doing other things today. It's weird how you can work at home and yet still sort of lose track of time because you're busy. You would think you would not be busy when there's nobody around you, but I just sort of get absorbed in tasks at least. It's probably a function of my attention span as much as anything else. Anyway, I did get a lot of great questions, so I will try to answer a few of them right here. First, from Stan Slate, what makes a pitch an 80 grade? I think the simplest answer to that uh, is the hitters will tell you if it's an 80 grade pitch. If they are unable to hit it at all, meaning they swing and miss quite a bit, or they make very consistently weak contact against the pitch. Now, we do have ways to measure that now. Uh, in, uh, quantitatively that we really didn't have until about five years ago uh, using stack cash track man, similar systems. I do also want to hear the opinion of experienced scouts when they go see a player, if they think something will be an 80 grade pitch, because often we're going to see players who are much younger and trying to project, project on what those pitches will be going forward. And so you're looking for little characteristics of the pitch. You're also just looking for the hitters reactions. There is, it, it, there are a lot of, scouting axioms around this, but it is essentially their hitter, hitters will tell you if that pitch is any good. If they're square, if the guy's throwing 97, but hitters keep squaring it up, high school hitters are able to connect with that pitch and keep it fair. They're telling you something that is data. It's simply data of a different kind. And I do think that contributes to what our evaluations and grades should be on pitches. Uh, Davis Chili, not the actual Chili Davis, asked, is there an increased competitive advantage for teams with extra picks considering a truncated 2020 draft and the inverse, increased penalty for those with fewer picks? That's an excellent question. I, I'm inclined to say yes. I only hesitate because I have not given this a lot of thought, and I feel like this is something we could – you could almost try to model it or mock it out to see how it plays out. The one thing that I – feel confident in we're probably not going to have a draft of more than 10 rounds i hope i'm wrong i hope we at least get to 12 to 15 rounds there's talk it could be as short as five rounds i think that's a huge mistake um and i don't think it actually saves baseball that much money anyway but the 11th round is a pretty key round because under the current system your bonus pool 
is equal to the sum of the slot values for all your picks in rounds one through 10. If you spend less than that to sign all your picks from rounds one through 10, you can take some of the excess and give it to players you sign after the 10th round. So typically the 11th round is a bit of a free-for-all where many of the best undrafted players at that point, typically guys who are undrafted for financial reasons, uh, come off the board. And teams try to make a run at them and say, look, we got an extra half million left. We'll give you that much over slot over the the maximum for the 11th round and just see if it's good enough to get you to sign. That goes away under the current system. And so I think there will be more pressure to just take the best players you possibly can. More than one industry source has said to me they think the draft will be more straight this year, meaning players will go off the board in something more like their order of talent as opposed to the gaming of the system that most teams have to try to do to move money around so that they get the most total talent. And that would increase the competitive advantage for the teams with extra picks, which I believe is what the initial question was all about. Mac Murdoch asked, did I ever do a compliment to the best eats of the Cactus League? I want to know what the best eats of the Grapefruit League are. I have not. I have. This is on my personal site, The Dish, where uh, the last time I updated the whole thing was in 2016, just the best places to eat near each of the Cactus League ballparks. I've done some other posts since then, just other good places in Arizona. In Florida, food in Florida is just generally not as good. A lot of those ballparks are in smaller towns or just don't have the same food scene. Tampa, Tampa, greater Tampa does not have the food scene of metropolitan Phoenix, which actually I think has a pretty tremendous and kind of underrated food scene. I do have lots of posts on my blog with individual spots I've liked. Um, I could probably give you a good coffee place in many of the Grapefruit League cities and some decent places to eat. I just had generally not had as good experiences on the food side uh, scouting in Florida over the years than I have in Arizona. And also the weather's better in Arizona. So that's, that is a factor too. So I'm always going to choose to go to Arizona if you give me the option to do both. Tim Freeland never asked, whatever happened to Tirso Ornelas, an outfield prospect in the Padres system? You know, he hurt his wrist pretty badly in 2018 and then just had a bad 2019 across the board. And I don't know if that was the reason. I, I don't want to come out and say, yep, that's why. That's why he had a bad year. He went from hitting really well for a couple of years to not hitting at all. Generally, I look for some sort of outside explanation. We're only going to find out if that was true when he gets back on the field, when everybody gets back on the field this year, and we see if he performs again. If he doesn't, uh, then he's just probably not going to pan out at that point. But I would really like to see him get on the field, see if he's fully healthy, if he has all his wrist and hand strength back, and see what it looks like. Uh, Laniel Makudu asks, is it too early to be worried about Kevin Maiton? The hype was palpable when Atlanta signed him originally. He's just not that good. He's just not. Um, he probably peaked at 14. I know that's weird to say. I also think that the regression in his conditioning is a huge part of it, but also his swing has gotten worse. I just think he's not the player he was supposed to be. This happens a lot in the, the international free agency market because you have to commit to players so far before the point when you actually sign them. And so some of them just peaked early, and that's why they get paid. They get their growth spurt first. Some of them just weren't that good, and we have a hard time evaluating them because they're still children at that point. Uh, last question. Christy Andrea asks, Jason Dominguez, what level should the Yankees start him at this year? Where do you expect them to from what you're hearing? I should have asked last week when you had Lindsay Adler on. Sorry, that's okay. Uh, still a good question. Let us assume that baseball resumes around June 1st or so and that short season baseball exists in its typical form this summer. That may not be true, but just go with that because I think it's the best way to answer the question. I think he should go to the GCL. I understand they may feel like he's advanced enough that he could probably just go right to uh, the Abbey League, to Pulaski, or even to Staten Island. All three of those are short season leagues. 
I would just start him in the Gulf Coast League because he's never actually played a professional game. And that is a highly controlled environment. He's at your facility. Your people are there. You have more of your staff there than you would have anywhere else. Let him go for a couple of weeks. If he goes bonkers and hits 400 with a bunch of homers in the first three weeks down there, you move him up. You move him up. I, At that point, I might actually move him up to Staten Island rather than Pulaski to have him closer to the Bronx, easier to get to him because I do not – I am not a big fan of sending – uh, players from Latin America to the Appalachian League more for assimilation reasons than anything else. But I think the best place for him to start is the Gulf Coast League. Thank you for all the questions. Again, I appreciate everyone answering me on short notice or asking me on short notice this week. I will try to be better about putting that call out on future Mondays. And that is all for this week's episode of the Keith Law Show. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please subscribe. And if you enjoy it, especially if you enjoyed this week's episode, I'm going to talk to some other scouts going forward to try to get similar stories of players who we all know got to the big leagues and get some thoughts on what they were like when they were still prospects. So please, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe and maybe tell a friend to subscribe as well. Thanks so much for listening.